Welcome to Getting Curious. I'm Jonathan Van Ness, and every week I sit down for a gorgeous conversation with a brilliant expert to learn all about something that makes me curious. And before we dive into this very special episode, can I just say thank you so much? I love you all so much. Thank you for learning with me. Thank you for tuning in week after week and supporting our work on Getting Curious. We love you. We appreciate you. Thank you for sharing our work. Just like from the bottom of my big queer heart, thank you. I see you and I love you. This week, we're re-airing one of our most impactful episodes, all about mutual aid. We encourage you to take a listen and then take some time to learn about mutual aid initiatives in your community. Then take another second and maybe share this episode with someone who has not heard Getting Curious yet. Without further ado, here's our conversation with Dean Spade, where I ask him, how can we show up for mutual aid? Welcome to Getting Curious. This is Jonathan Van Ness. I'm so excited for our guest this week. We have Dean Spade. You have spent your entire career working to build queer and trans liberation based in racial and economic justice, including, this is one of my very favorite parts of the sentence, including founding the Sylvia Rivera Law Project. Your new book is Mutual Aid, which I just have to say, after having read starts off as mutual aid, but then it turns into like the stunning advice book for all things life and made me have lots of questions about how you figured all this stuff out. So but anyway, how are you? And welcome to the show. Thank you. I'm so happy to be here. Me too. Um, and also there's some very stunning natural light on your face and you are coming to us from Seattle, right? Yes. This natural light is unusual. <laughs> yeah. So I'm really happy that Seattle's having a sunny day. And on that note, I really just want to kind of jump right in. One thing that we've talked about on Getting Curious in the past is the nonprofit industrial complex. And we've also talked about some of the ways that, you know, charities, like sometimes it doesn't reach to the levels of the people who need it the most. And so in learning about mutual aid, I was just like, this is amazing. I think what you study and what you've started is also so amazing. So just to get everyone on the same page, can you tell us what mutual aid is? Definitely. Yeah. So mutual aid is the word we use for the part of social movement work where we're getting together to meet people's survival needs based on a shared understanding that the kinds of crises people are facing are created by the systems we live under and worsened by them. I also think of it as being particularly important because it's often the on-ramp for people into social movement organizing. Like people tend to show up to social movements because they're like pissed and scared and like something terrible is happening and they like need help. And then they meet other people who also think that thing shouldn't happen. And then they work on it together, both directly supporting individual people in struggle and also trying to like get to the root causes of it. So maybe I show up because I'm like facing all these horrible conditions in my housing my landlord is neglectful and, you know, profiteering and all these things. And I meet with, uh, uh, you know, people who are going to help me with my specific individual case so I don't get evicted or whatever. But also I end up joining the tenants rights movement in my city or we work on a rent strike with all the other tenants who have the same landlord or we can tell the same story. Like I show up because I'm undocumented and I'm scared about what's happening and I'm here to you know, find out what to do to protect my family if there's a raid at my job. And then I end up like getting together with other people who are undocumented and their allies and accomplices to also like fight to close the detention center down in our region. It's this kind of part of the work that is about like people's immediate needs, but it's tied to these like deeper transformative uh, strategies. And like in order to do the transformative strategies, you need lots of people, it seems like, but maybe it doesn't start with like lots of people. So what are some of the like contemporary examples of mutual aid that like if, if people are so like, sounds great. Dean just said like a lot of words that I'm obsessed with, but I know for myself, I have this really annoying habit of being obsessed with like examples. And I hate that about myself. I'm just kidding. I love that about myself. I need examples. Yeah. Well, obviously I think the most 
visible mutual aid right now, like that's caused a lot of people to learn about mutual aid recently is all the mutual aid people are doing around COVID. So all these really amazing projects where people are doing like, we're going to deliver groceries to people who can't leave the house because they are more likely to get sick with COVID and be really in danger. We're going to pick up their prescriptions. People are doing so many different kinds of like food bank and food justice type work. That's about getting food to people in communities because so many of people are unemployed right now. Fundraisers for specific groups of people who are unlikely to be getting unemployment benefits right now, like people in the sex trades, um, you know, people who are artists. There's been all different kinds of, you know, rent funds, Bail funds have been huge. I mean, there's been this huge growth of bail funds in general in the last few years as more and more people come to understand the violence of the money bail system and the criminal system in general. But then specifically this summer when there was these uprisings and there was tons of protesters arrested, you saw um, lots of people organizing bail funds to bail people out. There's also like enduring examples that aren't COVID or this summer's uprising examples like prison letter writing projects. Like for for Years and years and years and years and years. Maybe you've heard of Black and Pink, which is a, a national organization that's got chapters all over and they help people um, connect to l- writing letters with queer and trans prisoners. And it's like for the people receiving these letters and the friendships that get started, like a lot of queer and trans prisoners have no outside contacts. It makes them more likely to be targets when they're inside. It makes it harder for them to transition when they get out because they don't have any contacts. And so people are starting these relationships and th- those relationships aren't just uh, really great for for the, the two people who become friends and pen pals and sharing mutual support and wisdom and friendship and all of that. But also Black and Pink has been like a long-term leader in thinking about what's wrong with the prison system because they have all these deep relationships and these huge networks of people with deep relationships with people inside right now so that we can learn like how are queer and trans people really experiencing prison and what would be things that would help and what are like bad idea reforms that could make things worse for them. So like this this kind of like very grassroots meeting people's immediate needs work really like generates the actual wisdom of the movement about how it moves on policy issues or in terms of like what the next big strategies are to like get us out of these crises. I mean, I can give you endless examples of mutual aid because it's happening everywhere, but I think that probably most visible these days have been the COVID and bail fund type work. So this one time we got to interview this amazing neuroscientist. Her name is Dr. Caroline Leaf. And she talks about like trying to like undo whatever things you don't want to do anymore. Like, you know, self-destructive behavior type stuff. And one thing that she does is this like visualization technique where you kind of are like, I think the rule is like, you have to like visualize that same thing for like 30 days or 60 days or whatever. You're not doing like different visions like every day because, you know, your brain's got to concentrate like on the one thing. How does someone decide what they want to focus on or how do they even start to get involved with mutual aid or, you know, finding it or, you know, wanting to be involved in an organization that isn't, you know, necessarily, it's not a charity. It's like a different sort of, you know, it's a different sort of, of good, of good doing. Yeah. That's a great question. I mean, I think it's really useful for each and every one of us to try to actually go deep with something like what mutual aid projects need to sustain is people to like stick around and like, like, let's say you and I are going to help try to help people in our town through housing court. And like, cause we, we know that they're not guaranteed a lawyer. There's not enough lawyers to go around. So we're going to try to help people with like all the easiest issues in housing court and people who have a hard time with English or a hard time with reading or whatever. And so we set up that project, like we're going to want to like spend years together practicing, like, like we're going to want to like help people and then realize, oh, we've been missing this whole set of people. We actually need some people who speak Spanish in here. We're going to be like, oh, wow, this kind of case is too complicated for us. What would it take for us to learn that? We want to stick around and get good at this. And so we can be deeply in that project, but we can also be deeply in solidarity with the other stuff going on around us, right? Because everybody who's coming through housing court, they've got other things going on, like 
migrant justice problems, transportation problems. So we can be like, we're going to also show up as our project to the transit protest. We're going to also show up as our project to the migrant justice protest. We're going to also um, mm. work in solidarity with the people who are doing the food banking. And we're going to ask them if they can bring food to the same spot where we meet people to fill out forks for housing or, or whatever. Like, so I, one of the things I think happens for people when they do mutual aid because is that you learn more about whatever it was you were first fired up about. So maybe you knew your own experience or your best friend's experience that got you fired up, but you learn about like all the other things that are connected. And of course, you know, it's all connected. And so I think that solidarity is the frame I would give that. Like we learn solidarity skills by practicing consistently and deeply. Like I like the story you told about the neuroscientist because it's it's not about a flash in the pan. It's not about showing up once. Mutual aid is actually about like trying to sustain like building new social relations. Like how do people get food? How do people support each other? Like that's that's not a kind of like I show up once on a weekend. It's like, oh, I'm going to keep writing to this person who's in prison for years, you know? And I mean, I still know them when they get out and think about how we can support each other then. So it is that sustained stuff. I do want to talk about the difference between charity and mutual aid. Is this the moment? Yes. Okay. Okay, good. Because I noticed you mentioned a couple of times and I do think it's kind of a pivotal thing for people's thinking we all grew up inside the context where charity is like the norm for talking about like poor relief in, in the United States and in general capitalism. It's like this idea that like, you know, basically nonprofits like social service nonprofits or the government should decide kind of who's deserving or undeserving poor people. Like, Oh, we don't serve people who are undocumented or we only serve people with kids or we don't serve queer and trans people, or we don't serve you unless you're willing to take these meds or we don't serve people if they do use these drugs. Like, Charity is like a framework in which elites, like rich people in the government, decide which poor people get basically crumbs. Charity frameworks are not designed to get rid of the problem. They're not designed to get to the root causes. They're designed to kind of like parse using these kind of rigorous eligibility criteria, like who gets this crumb, who gets that crumb. And as you mentioned at the beginning, like the most vulnerable people always get left out of charity programs because it's, it is the person who's undocumented, the person who's in the sex trades, the person who's currently using drugs, the person who's got a felony record. The most stigmatized people get left out by design. And so charity is like something that sustains the current wealth distribution, whereas mutual aid is like politicized support that's trying to destroy the current wealth distribution and everything that's creating the current conditions. So inside that, we could look at a lot of like kind of characteristics of charity versus characteristics of mutual aid. Like I have a chart about it in my book, but we could see like in charity, there's often like a savior complex, like kind of a white savior complex is the framework, but it can just be any kind of savior complex, but it's in that model of white savior complex. There's an idea that the people getting the help or support, like, there's something wrong with them and we should like intervene upon them. So like you're poor because you need to take a budgeting class or a parenting class or you need to get sober or whatever. That's part of the eligibility criteria. It's very paternalistic. Um, whereas mutual aid is like, oh, you're poor or you're homeless or you're in crisis because of a system that put you there and your dignity matters and your choices and your wisdom about the crisis from your position actually should inform how we all think about it. We could go on and on, but like typical charity models is that you got some people who are paid, who are elites, maybe they've got high degrees and they're deciding for the poor what they need and how they should get it. Whereas mutual aid is usually volunteer-based projects and organizations. And we're all just like, okay, like let's decide together horizontally. We don't have an ED. We don't have a boss, a CEO. We're like, let's decide together like what works. And one more thing about charity is at this day and age, it's like, it's PR for corporations and rich people. I mean, Zuckerberg, et cetera. Right. And so mutual aid is not, is not PR for the system's that be like, wow, look at how generous. It's like, no, the distribution of wealth itself is like a horrible injustice. That's also like an artificially created like nightmare. And we're here to 
destroy that. So mutual aid is usually, sometimes it's like stuff that looks just like really wonderful and generous and kind of like softer, like we're delivering people's groceries. But sometimes it's stuff like we're helping people who've crossed the border illegally, or we're helping people hide from the cops or from ICE, or um, it's, it's often also kind of like more dangerous stuff. Like here where I live in Seattle, we had this occupied protest zone this summer during the protests. And mutual aid is the infrastructure of those kinds of occupations. It's like tents where people are giving out like food and mental health support and free haircuts. Those tents actually become the, the occupation itself and they're illegal. You know, so to mutual aid, it has teeth and sometimes it's kind of explicitly like at odds with the cops or like we just had a thing where in that same park, the cops tried to remove the homeless encampment that was there and people came and built barricades all the way around it and fought the cops. That is mutual aid. It's supporting the survival needs of those unhoused people, right? Um, and sometimes mutual aid looks more like I'm just getting to know the old people on my block so that like when the storm comes or the lights go out, I can know how we can network to support each other and make sure nobody gets hurt worse. I think that Mainstream systems want to say charity and mutual aid are the same thing. And they're really, really not. They have really different political commitments that I think are like very significant. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense to me. And I also think that a lot of times with charities, it's like, I don't, I mean, maybe people at the highest levels of charities have more sinister things that I feel like so many of the people that get involved in charity work, the intention isn't to keep people down. It's not to keep the systems as they are. Um, but it kind of is like that says like the road to hell is paved with good intentions. It's like if you're trying to make things better and it seems like that would be a good thing, but sometimes it does take, you know, a deeper, more critical look. So, but because of, you know, mutual aid not having like those classic like leadership structures, how would a mutual aid group deal with like a leadership or a decision-making thing if it doesn't necessarily have like a board or like a boss? Yeah. So people do it lots of different ways. My book is is arguing for something that I've seen work really well. And I think is like increasingly popular people who are recognizing like the limits of, of hierarchies. Basically, when we organize ourselves in terms of hierarchies, when you're going to tell me just because you're the boss and you started or whatever, how I should do this. And I'm doing this work for free and I don't get any say. It's just like, I'm less likely to stick around. So like the, w- the way to create mutual aid projects that are dynamic that people stay in is to have everybody have a say in how we do the work. And also those hierarchies, if we keep them, are going to end up being the same, you know, hierarchies from our society, right? It's likely that we're going to end up with like people on top because they're older or because they're white or because they have a degree or whatever. Whereas what we really want is all the wisdom of the group to determine. Like, if we were going to do it on Wednesdays, and I'm like, I'm the boss, Wednesdays. And then you're like, actually, Wednesdays is when the migrant justice group down the block does its thing. It would be a bad idea. But if I didn't listen to you because I'm not part of that group, you know, like, I would miss the wisdom, right? So you can think of a million examples or how how to best reach people in our community. You know, all of our wisdom is going to create the best answers. So in the book, I propose things that I've been working with mutual aid groups for two decades practicing in different ways, just methods of making decisions together where you don't have to all sit down in one consensus meeting to decide like what color the, you know, poster board should be. No, Uh, we don't have to decide everything as a group, but instead how can we break into teams for particular types of decisions that are like implementing our big plan? And then how can we also make sure that we all had a say in our big plan and that we know what other teams are doing so we all feel co-ownership over the work? And so like part of this is that we don't want a group where something's bothering me the whole time, but I, I never get a chance to say it. So I never say it. And so then I explode and I like, this group sucks. And I like want to tear it down. You know, we want to actually move towards people having lots of say all the time and having like deep participation. And this relates to another difference between charity and mutual aid. In charity groups, if you want to volunteer, which I think what you just said about how like people have good intentions, like, of course, people like show up because they're like, oh my God, I'm so freaked out about what's going on under Trump and with increasing poverty and migrant justice. 
and they show up and then what, what nonprofits and charities offer them is like, you can stuff envelopes or be a donor or like post on social media. Like they offer a very thin relationship. Mutual aid is a very thick relationship. Like I'm going to co-steward this project with you for years and we're going to like develop deep skills. I don't have to have a special degree to learn how housing court works with you, you know, or to learn how to like talk to people about having cleaner energy in their homes or whatever, you know, like we can actually participate so much more deeply. And honestly, like we're trying to create a society, right? In which people co-govern our lives and have a say in what happens in our lives. And we need the skills. We need to stop being like passive kind of observers of politics, which I think is also what like election politics feels like for a lot of people. It's like a celebrity sideshow kind of. And nonprofits can be the same thing. Like, oh, those people with elite degrees who've studied that are going to do this. And all I can do is like send them my donation or like show up once a year to their march. Like we want people to like take our lives into our hands and know how to work together and collaborate. Not because we're at a, a job and a boss is telling us we have to, but because we're choosing to work together on something we care about. I mean, it, I also think it just like breaks our isolation. So many of us are experienced in this culture and especially during COVID, but before, and it breaks that sense of like, powerlessness and alienation that I think really people feel longing for. And this is part of why I think mutual aid is like the hidden truth of social movements. Like we're told social movements are just like the big speeches by the charismatic people, the big memo when the law is passed, but really social movements are made up of this kind of deep collaboration coordination. And that has been narrated out to keep us pass- passive and, de- and demobilized. So, so this kind of thick participation I'm talking about, I think is like a deep social need for us as as beings and also a deep method of creating the new world. I think about the onset of the HIV AIDS crisis in the 80s and and so many, what now I'm kind of realizing are like, were definitely mutual aid things like people coming together and, and helping each other and they weren't getting paid. They were doing it because of, you know, what was that word you, the phrase you said? It's like our communal like needs. It's like our basic needs. Yeah. So one thing that, you know, that makes me think is like, how does someone even find a mutual aid group to get a part of, especially if they're like in, you know, in the middle of nowhere, just like in a smaller, more rural, you know, place, first of all. And second of all, how does a mutual aid group determine like what the basic essential necessities are? Great, great questions. Yeah, so I think um, there's a lot of different ways to think about doing mutual aid. One is like you could look at existing resources, especially during COVID, people have been making cool websites. So like mutualaidhub.org is an example where you can go on and be like, well, what's going on in my state or in my region? And you might not find something right next to you. And of course, not every group is listed by any means, but you could contact groups that are anywhere near you and be like, what do you know that's closer to me? Is there something? And it might turn out there is something closer to you because some mutual aid is very much like local. But also there's like, Anyone could write a letter to a prisoner who's anywhere, right? And there's tons of other work like that, like support around mental health. A lot of that's happening online or support around, you know, queer and trans youth. So, so there's there's kind of many levels. Some of it's very place specific and some of it's not. So one thing is finding out who's already doing this stuff near you or who's doing this in a model you like. I spend tons of time communicating with people doing mutual aid projects that I think are interesting in other places because we're all networked. So it's like people who are doing homeless encampment defense in LA are talking to people who are doing it in Seattle and talking to people who are doing it in Bellingham, talking to people who are doing it, you know, in New York State or whatever. So that's another part of just like finding out people are doing a great resource for that is the uh, the podcast of and the website It's Going Down, which is like a media site. They list mutual aid projects. They do deep interviews with all these different mutual aid projects. So you get like the details, like how they do it and like what was hard and what's working, which I really recommend. And then the other thing is just like 
you know, it's great to start where you are. Like, what are you noticing in your community? It can be great to start with people who are already activated and, and work with them and learn from them and see what they're doing. But also it could just be like, I really want to do disaster prep on my block, you know, or in, or in my county. Okay, so I really want to zero in on this because there is so much hopelessness and despair. And I think when there is so much hopelessness and despair, especially in light of you know, how polarized we are politically. And like, I'm very much one of those people that's like, yeah, we're polarized because there's one group that's super like, you know, white supremacist and doesn't believe in, you know, like when we talk about how do we decide like what is basic life needs? It's like, we can't come to a common understanding when however many percent of the people can't come to a common understanding on our history. And I was actually thinking a lot about that lately and writing a lot about that lately. And I've been thinking a lot, this is really non sequitur, but stick with me, about how really it comes back to this issue of education. Because in public school growing up in the United States, like, we are not taught about the fact that we are brought up on stolen land. That Like, there's been several genocides that have taken, I mean, we know way more about World War II than what we know about what happened in the Civil War, what led up to the Civil War, and what, you know, precipitated even, like, what happened to Native Americans here? I mean, we just there isn't a lot of accountability that Americans have ever taken from its inception. So until we face so many of those things, I think that's really a lot of what's originally at the issue that you, that the United States is facing because we haven't dealt with our past. So that's, you know, a huge thing. But because we can't come to a common understanding, there is so much hopelessness and there is so much despair. And then also, you know, these fucking Republicans were like, we've got to heal, we've got to put, oh, it's time to move on which doesn't make anyone want to do anything because obviously you're just sticking your head in the sand. But the thing that I think is beautiful about mutual aid as it is an inroad for us to make community with each other, even if you don't agree politically, because it's about human needs and coming together. So here's the question. After having read your work and spending this, however long we've been together, I get the sense that you're a self-starter. No one needs to really come up to you and say like, Dean, would you like to, uh, it's like, no, you're like out there trying to already figure it out. You know, you are a self-starter. I am a self-starter. A lot of people see the stuff going on. They see that they're suffering. They see that, but it just feels so big and it feels so hopeless. And it just like, it, it's like they're listening how am I supposed to start a mutual aid thing? Like, I can't even watch the news, bear. Like, I'm so, you know. And then I was reading about, like, that cycle of injustice, like the injustice, the apathy, the performative activism. So how could you, in your experience, and all the different people that you've worked with over the years, and all the ways in which you've seen people go from not involved to involved? Because also, the idea with mutual aid is, obviously, you can't have elites helping people that have never lived it. But there's also probably people who have made it out of things and are like, Bye, girl. I got mine. I'm fine now. Like, good luck. Let me know how it goes. So how can people go from this kind of apathetic, like, oh, I don't want to do to finding some of finding some of it to get in the fight, as Elizabeth Warren would say? Yeah, great questions. I just want to go back for a second to what you were saying about white supremacy and like the spell. I would say that, that white supremacy puts a spell on white people, including poor white people, to have aspirations to be rich. So like I grew up like working class, you know, white South and rural and the ways I see people there identify with Donald Trump because they think they could be him and they don't realize there isn't actually class mobility in the United States. And so people talk about this as like the wages of whiteness, like, like white people get to feel like, well, at least I'm white 
um, or at least I'm not those people. At least I'm not black. At least I'm not indigenous. Whatever, whoever it is, they're hating. At least I'm not immigrant or whatever. They they they're being told, and then they think that means that they are class interests. Their their interests are aligned with white elites, and they're actually not at all. And they're actually like lives are getting worse and worse. And so one of the questions is, how is mutual aid part of breaking that spell? And one of the things that happens to people when they are part of mutual aid projects is they end up getting political education, right? Because when we're in a politicized project saying like these conditions are unfair and they're terrible. And so we're going to help everybody right now with them. We also, and any group of people who are coming for support to a mutual aid project are different from each other in a number of ways. And so you get there and you're like, I'm so mad this thing's happening with my landlord. And then you meet somebody else there who also is organizing against that landlord or against another landlord or against the housing court or the city or whatever. And that person is trans or that person is an immigrant or that person has a criminal record or something that you thought you didn't like. And I've seen this happen my whole life in mutual aid projects. Like we all meet each other and we grow our solidarities because we're like, yeah, we fucking hate that landlord, whatever. And you're not what I thought you were like, or you're like, oh, hey, like, you know, this is the thing about my pronoun, or this is the thing about that. We don't use that word talking to people with disabilities in my community. This is the word we do use. And this is why, and I'm like open to you because I am working with you on something I deeply care about and that affects me or some people I love. So that's like a really key piece, like the political ed part of mutual aid, which is explicitly part of most mutual aid groups. Like we're having, we're having a workshop tonight on disability justice at our mutual aid group, or we're having a workshop tonight on pronouns and trans stuff and make sure that we're not like harming people in our group or make sure we're more open to people who are not joining our group because we haven't been good about this. So that's one piece, the piece about how to mobilize people that you're asking, like, and the question about like kind of the role of allies or people who are not directly impacted. Like, I think this is a really important one. I think a lot of people get mobilized because they do hear about an existing project. So that's part of it. Like, I agree with you. Not everybody wants to start a mutual aid project, nor is everybody like well suited to. Like, it can be really great to just like join something that's nearby or that exists. Like anyone can write a letter with black and pink, for example, right now, you know, um, that can be a great way in. But I think that question, that emotional question, like, Sometimes we talk about it in some groups, like, when did you, like, step off the sidewalk? Like, when did you, like, join the middle of the march? And I think this is, like, a deep spiritual thing for us, like, living capitalism and white supremacy and heteropatriarchy. Like, what does the demobilization feel like? What are we scared of? How are we being de-skilled socially? Like, I'm scared to go to meetings with the people I don't know are going to be different from me. Like, that's something a lot of people feel. So for me as an activist, the way I handle that is I invite people a lot and I accompany people a lot. I'm like... I can tell you're really interested in like the transit politics of Seattle. The transit writers union has these meetings. Can I share the email with you? Do you want me to go with you? Like, I'm like, that's one thing is we can all try to be bridges or go with a friend if we're feeling like nervous, but interested, like just try it. And maybe before that, for some people like immersing themselves and listening to the it's going down podcast and all those stories of mutual aid will help that feel within reach. And then the piece around like the roles of, of different kinds of allies or people directly affected, like, I think it's really key that we see like mutual aid often has a lot of solidarities in it. So yes, everyone should be participating in mutual aid and inside mutual aid groups, people do thoughtful work about being like, oh, how do we make sure that people with the most wisdom and experience are centered in this decision-making process about this key question of whether we're going to go in this direction or that direction? Like there's tons and tons of tools people use to make sure that like the wisdom of people who have direct experience is centered, but that's not about not having any people who are not experiencing it right now participate because we actually need everyone to get mobilized. We need hundreds of millions of people if we're going to take down like U.S. military imperialism, capitalism, white supremacy. Like we can't exactly say like we're never going to have any of those people involved. There are people who start mutual aid projects and they're like, we're going to have an all black mutual aid project, excellent, or all trans or whatever. So that's one type you can start. You can also be part of mutual aid projects that have roles that are multiracial or cross-gender or cross-class. 
there's there's room for all of this. There is so much crisis. There's so much work to be done. And the question is like, oh, like what would suit for this particular need or what would get, what would people this up or inside some mutual aid projects, then they'll have a caucus. Like we're going to have a black caucus or we're going to have an indigenous caucus. Like there's so many different ways to sort of manage the real life, different social positions we come in and the ways we hurt each other with them. But the answer to all of it is like more engagement, not less. So, I mean, in many ways in the last, you know, two years and, or, I mean, it's, it really is so much more than that, but we just, I think we do have a, a, a more unique set of challenges than what we've had at some time because the racial injustice and the white supremacy and the transphobia and the homophobia and like the xenophobia and stuff, I feel like that has just been teeming for the longest. What has not been teeming for the longest is like, all that right after a gigantic pandemic. So I do think that, you know, mutual aid is going to play such a critical role. And I think another thing is, is that that I thought a lot about, especially in 2020, is like, had I been 17 or 25 in 2020, my life would have looked completely different because what I was going through at 17 um, being a young queer person in my first year outside of, you know, in the world. And then at 25 contracting HIV and being, you know, addicted to drugs in the midst of a pandemic. I mean, I don't think a pandemic would have necessarily like curtailed my acting out or my drug use. In fact, I think it probably would have exacerbated it, you know, because of the instability of housing and working. And I mean, I, I honestly can't imagine. I, I mean, I barely made it out when there wasn't a pandemic. So to be going through it in a pandemic, I don't know. If I would have. And so I think that mutual aid is that access and it is the community building that will lift so many people out of this. So the first question is, and that because it is going to be so important, who's really doing it right? And, you know, some of the things that like this is going to sound like a Midwestern read, but it's not. I love everything you say so much. Like I, I want people in like Hannibal, Missouri to be like, how are we going to break down the imperial military establishment of this country? You know, I don't know if even the most liberal queer person in Hannibal knows, like would say that quite yet. Cause there's just like, so I, so with that, it's like, I love the Seattle in you. I'm obsessed with the Seattle in you. The rest of the United States needs so much Seattle in them. So I hope this episode goes very far. But what are some of the ways, you know, as far as access to food, housing stability, the HIV social safety net, how are some of the ways that you are seeing like cutting edge differences in mutual aid and some of the ways that people are really doing it right in their own community? Yeah, totally. I mean, I think that, um, yes, the one thing I love about mutual aid is that we don't all have to be signed on to the same politics. So I'm a prison abolitionist, but I can work with you on a prison letter writing project, whether or not you're there yet, right? Like, or whether or not you're ever going to get there. But also then we can form a real relationship where we can talk about why I think that and we can try to convince each other of our views and see what happens, right? Like, and so that I think is really meaningful. So I think, I do think it's useful for people to start with the things that they are already passionate about because then they'll meet people and have that in common. And then they might learn other things together. Who's doing it right? I mean, some of the things that have been really inspiring to me lately, one is um, Critical Resistance Portland. It's the specific Portland chapter. Like, I'm moved by the scale of their work. Like, they made a commitment, I think, last year to 
together write a letter to every prisoner in Oregon. I don't know anyone who's done that in any state. That's incredible. And then they also made a commitment to raise money for every single imprisoned firefighter in Oregon. I'm sure you followed what's happened with the fires in Oregon this year. Um, so like that was, that's like big scale, like, wow, that's so bold. So critical resistance is like something that there's like chapters in a lot of cities. So if you're in a city where there wasn't a chapter and you like were listening to this and you're like, oh my gosh, that's amazing. You could like be like, oh my gosh, I think I love all those things and I want to do that in my community. Absolutely. And they have criticisms as tons of tools for their chapters and people in different chapters are doing different things. Like in some places they're trying to fight to stop a certain prison from being built or a certain jail. Um, in some places they're, they're doing direct support to prisoners. I mean, they do that pretty much everywhere, but Prisons Portland has a particular wide scale. I've been moved by all these fridges people are putting around. Have you seen this where like people are putting in cities, like they'll create a community mutual aid fridge and people will keep it full. So it's like, um, that's a really cool, like, just very piece of infrastructure around people's food needs that a lot of people are doing. I'm really moved by all the work people do to support people to get out of prison. I mean, right now in COVID, the crisis of COVID in prisons is unbelievable. So people are doing all kinds of like amazing protests and stuff, but also like being part of groups where you can like try to create a support team for people who could write letters to get that person compassionate release or to get that person to a halfway house sooner or things like that. So people doing that kind of work. In every city, there's so many more encampments of unhoused people. And in, I think, rural places, like unhoused people are also facing crisis in various ways. So there's all kinds of projects people are doing around that. Like I've also seen people do, like, let's do a network for ki kids aging out of foster care into homelessness. So let's be mm. like, okay, you've got a room in your basement. I, and let's have a Google doc and just like, see if we can, and maybe we're coordinating with like a local legal aid group that knows who some of these young people are. And we're going to be like figuring out who can offer housing for a month, who can offer housing for two months, like anything that's short of like living on the street. Right. I mean, I could just go on and on and on, but there's kind of like creative problem solving that's about like instead of being like well i hope a law passes that'll someday resolve this problem it's not gonna happen you know or to instead yeah. like well what would actually help people like not get covid tonight or not sleep outside tonight or not be hungry tonight i mean this, this the level of support that parents are needing right now figuring out what we can do in our communities to to rally around people whose kids are out of school i mean there's just you know there's bottomless numbers of problems i think that as you were mentioning the crises are are going to get worse like we're we're in a severe severe economic crisis that i think is going to continue and worsen we're in a climate crisis that means there's going to be more storms more fires more floods and all of that like if we've already organized mutual aid before the next fire or the for the next flood or storm or drought we're more likely to know who's vulnerable, to be ready to organize and share resources, to have a plan, to push back when the city's not doing what it's supposed to do or FEMA's not doing what it's supposed to do. So the more we can just like actually be engaged with helping each other with basic needs, even if it's something that seems like not the most urgent thing, but feels like it just starts to connect people to, to being in a group together, to, to working together, all of that is like building our infrastructure of survival. So at the beginning, we were talking about, you know, how like some charities like, well, I'm only going to help this type of person or that type of person. And then at the idea that mutual aid is, is like, well, we're going to help anybody who comes here that's, you know, dealing with the same problem. So have you ever been minding your own business and then like, you know, like a big old Capitol Hill rioter came in and was like, I fucking hate these landlords too. Like, what if a big old Trump supporter comes in and you just have to be like, yeah, I'm going to help you. Like, isn't that part of what you have to be prepared to do if you're going to be do mutual aid because we don't turn people away? Well, mostly, as I understand it, the Capitol Hill rioter people were all like upper class. That was a people bad business example. Owners. No, was a but, bad but example. it's a good example. It's a good example for that reason, because what I notice is when we go to like 
where people are really in crisis. And it doesn't mean people who are there won't have like messed up views. Like you're going to encounter racism, sexism, trans everywhere. I think everyone deserves support and help, even if they're holding those views and it's an opportunity to engage people. And if they do things that are harmful or whatever, it's a great chance to like engage and give feedback and support. Like, I think that's how we transform people. There's not like people who are racist and people who aren't. There's just like everybody. We all have a lot of um, gaps in our analysis. We all have ways we hurt others and don't know it. We all have things to learn and we all deserve compassion and feedback, like including boundaries when needed. So, so yes, when, whenever we go anywhere, like if we're going to go hang out at the, at the encampment in the park and try to support people and give out food and talk to people about things they might need, or maybe they need plastic for their tent to keep it from dry from the rain, we might encounter all kinds of people with all kinds of views and behavior. And how can we lovingly engage all those people and also like have boundaries and give feedback. And so that would be the same in any uh. group. The having boundaries and giving feedback, I wish I could just like bring you with me all the time. I'd probably be like way more like less hateful sometimes. I get so mad. One thing that mutual aid requires is actually being open to people being on a learning journey. You don't have to show up already knowing every single thing I know. And we're not always that good at it. We love to be the one who knows, you know? I love to be the one who knows. Yes. But how do I be really like, oh, there's things I don't know. And there's things I remember not knowing. And there's ways I've hurt people by saying stuff that wasn't cool. And so how do I just like be a bit more generous and be like, we're trying to bring people in and win them over and make them fight with us for life in the struggle. We are not trying to prove how I'm right right now. And that is like a skill issue, like how to like gain that skill. I feel like you're nailing that skill. I hear what you're saying that we're not all perfect. I do feel like you are, you know, maybe just because you've been practicing for so long, you are really good at it. Much compassion, much patience. So we all need a little bit of a page out of your book. There was a question I was asking earlier that took me like 15 minutes to get the question out. It's like really mutual aid can be really small concepts all the way to really big concepts. I feel like you covered that. I actually, I want to answer that though, because this is a question a lot of people have. They're like, when people think about scale, they're like, well, this all sounds like a bunch of people doing these little projects. How is that ever going to like solve poverty or whatever. And, and people often think that because we live in a hierarchical society that believes in centralization, people are like, well, if you're going to build your little mutual aid project here, you're going to eventually get to have the statewide one or like a national one, because that's like kind of what's considered important in like the nonprofit world. Like the ACLU or like these Planned Parenthood, these big groups, that's actually the opposite of the theory of mutual aid. Mutual aid is based on a theory that we should actually have decentralized, small projects that maybe are replicating each other's best practices, but also like in this neighborhood, it works best this way because there's a different culture over here or in this group, people like it to do it like this, like actually that there's local wisdom around meeting crises and that it's all about the the people who are in crisis, like they're going to say what they need and it's not going to look the same in every single spot with every single group of people. And so... Um, the, the strength is in like the solidarity and the networkedness of all these small decentralized things, not in like some person in the middle or some group in the middle saying, this is how it's done. Um, mm. and this is just like a really important reframe that scale, like a lot of people involved doesn't mean centralization. Actually, you can scale up better when you decentralize and coordinate. So it's just, I just wanted to say it because people ask that. A lot. Yes. And why do we do that? Is it Miss Universe? Is it the, is it the Olympics? Is it the patriarchal capitalistic society? Is it, is that explain Miss Universe and the Olympics? I don't even want to know. I do want to know, but it's authoritarianism. We live in a society that values 
authority and hierarchy. It's like, I have more land. I'm the king of more things. Extraction. I, I own more workers. And that is, to me, the opposite of liberation. Liberation is actually, yeah. instead of some boss or some politician far away who's never met you, deciding the conditions of your life and what kind of air you breathe and what kind of housing you yeah. live in. We co-govern our own. We collective, we have collective self-determination over our conditions of life. And we have deeply democratic ways of deciding things together about our neighborhood and our workplace and our schools. And that is the opposite of what we've been told is like how things work or efficient. And so yes, it's, it's like having like authority dispersed. It's a really different framework. I just love the idea of like, you know, something tied up into a neat package. I want to understand it. I don't want it to be messy. Like I just, I want to put it up in a package and say, I understand that. And then, you know, I want things to just make sense. And the more life I live, the more I realize it. It just, it is not really ever like that. It is not. And, and then I also make that, that kind of commit that analogy of like, you know, with any of the issues that we come to with mutual aid or even just having compassion and understanding for everyone. Sometimes having compassion and love for everyone feels like having to go to the kitchen and make a salad when you want to go to Taco Bell. Because going to Taco Bell, it's much easier to eat, you know, a cheesy gordita rage-filled crunch. You know, eat your rage because you're so fucking mad because there's all the suffering and the ignorance. But really, it's the salad is like the... But it's not as much of a box. Like, salads are messy. You know, cheesy gordita crunch, it comes in a very nicely packaged box. You can throw it away afterwards. You don't have to think about it. You know, the salad is a much more like self-care, community, you know, loving approach to it. And it's just... It's not as simple. And I think that people, myself included, are guilty of just, you know, that that human condition in the society that we've been raised in, that we want to be able to make it simple. And sometimes these answers just aren't simple. And it's not even unfortunately not simple. They're just not simple. And that's actually kind of gorgeous. It's just a reframe. That's why your podcast is called Getting Curious, which is like my number one value for myself is as being curious. Like, how can I be okay with not knowing everything yet? Spend my entire life curious about what I don't know, including like finding out that the way I've been doing it is not the right way or that someone else has other wisdom or that I've been actually leaving people out or hurting people like that value of being like, yep, I I can't draw a neat line or put a simple box and then be done. Like I think a lot of people want to feel that way, especially about like, I'm not racist anymore because I read this or thought this or said this, or I'm not sexist anymore or whatever, as opposed to just like, wow, I was shaped by these systems. I am so curious about how to undo them. I'm, I want to study all the movements in the world to figure out how they're, what they're trying, what they've tried, what worked, what didn't. And I also want to like find out how, I, what I've missed and then have that, those aha moments that are pleasurable, not shameful. And that's, it's yes. hard in our society. We've not been told how to do that. Yeah. And for some reason, like, I mean, Beauty pageants are, like, very young JVN, but, like, now the older I get, the more I, like, realize, like, all the other issues about, like, figure skating and gymnastics and, like, the other things that I've, like, been obsessed with my whole life that I'm very shaped by, but I don't want to dismantle those things. I'm still obsessed with them. We just need to fix the systemic things that made them not a fucking K so that everybody can figure skate and do gymnastics if they want to in a safe, gorgeous environment. I love it. I see your mutual aid project about figure skating emerging. Okay, yeah, because I actually, I just learned, like, late last year, like, how problematic, like, a lot of, like, you know, Olympics were and stuff, because I was, like, shoving my head in an ostrich stand, because I didn't want, because I, I'm so, I did, I, I, it's what got me through my young queer childhood in, like, the middle of nowhere, like, I needed to watch the Olympics, it gave me my fantasy. 
it is the fantasy. I love it. I can't help it. Just, you know, waving with your, but I get that it's like steeped in a lot of bad stuff. So we got to like open it up, get the, get the corruption out, get the systemic, all the systemicsness that's running. Cause there's, you know, several. Maybe we can all just go figure skating and well, make fake I mean, medals. I think that this, <laughs> the Olympics is a great idea, a great example, because of course I want to abolish the Olympics. It destroys cities. It goes to, it's this horrible you know thing, but like, do I want there to be like amazing ways to participate in moving our bodies and watching people do things they're really great at? Like, what if that was decentralized? What if that was local? What if that was really resourced? What if it included everyone? Ooh, like that's Olympics a different- in every city? And maybe we wouldn't call it that because, you know, people have these bad feelings about what the Olympics has been, but just this kind of like, yeah. like what if we, and also what if we moved from having everything be a spectator sport? Like one of the things about capitalism, it tells us like those people are good at sports. If you're not that good, you just shouldn't do it. If you're not that good at music, if you're not that good at like basically art, sports, all these important parts of our lives are like, you're only allowed to be a passive consumer unless you're the marketable, like best. And that's like yeah. a loss for everyone. So yes, because I want to be like the adult bronze novice beginner adult figure skating champion but this must be like the imperialism capitalist in me still because like I do want to be like the United States bronze like beginner level champion or at least like the state of tech what's wrong with me why can't I just be an adult figure skater but I am already an adult figure skater yeah maybe what okay so let me pitch this to you as an and is a is an Olympics ab- ab- abolitionist what if the Olympics was always in one city and if it was like let a carbon neutral footprint and there was no violence or like exploitation and it was in one city? Yeah, I don't I don't know how that would happen. That part about the carbon neutral and the, if people are going to like get there. But but I think that but if absolutely I'll, I'll join you in the in the fantasy. I mean, I think this thing about like how can everyone get to like participate fully in yeah. whatever they're into. That's like my question, you know? Cause you know what it could be too? Yeah. It could just be that maybe you name it a different thing. Cause for me, honestly, you could have like whoever wanted to participate from every country do it. And I would watch if you made like the arena look cute with those bold colors and like that they do. I mean, I, I, I think I watched like 56 hours of gymnastics the last Olympics because I found the live feed like that wasn't the one on primetime. Like I watched like all eight flights. Like there's literally like 56 teams. Like there were there were certain teams from certain places where like I can't like I can't still do it like the like the not most advanced team does. But I could like think about doing it into a pit sometimes. So I was even watching girls that like, you know, do stuff that like and boys that do stuff on like, you know, American high school like high school cheer squads, but I still am obsessed. Like I, I mean, you don't need to be Simone Biles for me to like want to watch gymnastics, honey. It, like I mean, I'll watch myself do gymnastics, and I can barely, like, I can't even twist. So, yeah, I'm into that. We just need more all level competitions for everyone, and I will be the number one fan as long as it's figure skating or gymnastics. I think this is cool too, talking about this and all the pleasure that you feel in this and how much it like, how much relief it probably brings to like a hard day or whatever. And I was thinking about how like, like throwing really amazing queer parties can be something that is related to mutual aid. Like people's isolation, devastation, all, all the things people are feeling because the world we live in, like giving people ways to like connect to pleasure and to, and to break isolation is le- like a legitimate social need. And it's a, it's a survival need. So I love like what you just shared showed me how for you, like being able to watch people do beautiful, amazing things with their bodies is like 
part of your like survival and wellness. I didn't mean to go into such an Olympic tirade. It happens to me like three times a day. I don't know what my problem is. Dean, it's the part of the podcast where, you know, what it's yogi recess. You wanted to open up your hips, but I wouldn't stop doing like Surya Namaskar A. So like your hips are still feeling hella tight and there's only two minutes left in class, but your answer can take more than two minutes and you don't have to say anything, but I would love for you to, if you do want to, if, what did we miss on mutual eight? What will we be remissed if we didn't get to? Um, I don't think there's something about mutual aid that I'm feeling like I wish we'd said. I'd be remiss if I didn't compliment your haircut. I'm just saying at the end. Oh my God, I was thinking about how. Oh my God, the fucking gorgeous, goddamn, like fucking gorgeous shag, like giving me a 70s shag. It's visually very balanced, and I've been loving it the entire time. You've been listening to Getting Curious with me, Jonathan Van Ness. Our guest this week was Dean Spade. You'll find links to his work in the episode description of whatever you're listening to the show on. We've referenced Dean's work so much in many recent episodes, so make sure to check out our archives for more, available at jonathanvanness.com slash podcasts. Our theme music is Freak by Quinn. Thank you so much to her for letting us use it. If you enjoyed our show, introduce a friend, honey, and please show them how to subscribe. You can follow us on Instagram and Twitter at CuriousWithJVN. Our editor is Andrew Carson. Getting Curious is produced by me, Erica Ghetto, and Zara Krim. 